Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First in moments, Andrew Basevich tries to make sense, if any sense can be made, of Trump's foreign policy. And at the bottom of the hour, Steve Marr will trace the decline and not quite fall of GE. Does Donald Trump have a foreign policy? The question is almost comical. But you never know, maybe there's something coherent behind the apparently random gestures. Here's Andrew Basevich to make sense of it all, or at least try to. Basevich, a professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University, is or was nominally conservative, but he doesn't have much in common with today's Republican Party. Before going into academia, Basevich was in the U.S. Army, from which he retired as a colonel in the early 90s. A graduate of West Point, he got a Ph.D. in American diplomatic history from Princeton and has taught at West Point and Johns Hopkins. Andrew Basevich. Like many people, I'm trying to make sense of what Trump is up to in foreign policy. <laughs> Perhaps you have been able to do something. But let's start with Syria. What is going on with the Syrian withdrawal? Is it going to happen? What's he trying to accomplish? Is, is Bolton really running the show? What's, what's going on? Well, I'll give you an unsatisfactory answer, and that is that your guess is as good as mine. I guess my interpretation of what is occurring would be this. The president is certain about one thing with regard to foreign policy, maybe more than one thing, but a very important thing that he is certain about is that he wants to lower the U.S. military profile globally. And in particular, uh, he wants to uh, extricate us from Middle East wars that both as a candidate and since becoming elected, he's denounced as catastrophic mistake, waste of time, never should have happened. So he seems to be quite firm in that view. On the other hand, we have seen time and time again that there's an enormous gap between what the president says and what his administration does. I have been really impressed with how weak the president is as a chief executive, how frequently he allows himself to be rolled. So he likes to you know, spout off, make dramatic statements. His ability to follow through, perhaps even his will to follow through, is simply not there. And so we have this circumstance where he makes a grand announcement about pulling out of Syria, and then we have both members of his administration and the broader foreign policy establishment pushing back against that and trying to prevent it from happening. Now, how that's going to play out, I don't know. If I had a lot of extra money and I was going to put down bets, I would bet that once again the president will not uh, be able uh, to follow through successfully on what he says he wants to do. And what about Bolton's role? Is he the, the puppet master, or is he just uh, <laughs> something out of central casting, as Trump likes to say? Well, I don't know. I mean, if we could say that Trump is a nationalist in some respects, you know, America first, it's also, I think, reasonable to say that Bolton is a nationalist. But Bolton is a nationalist of another stripe. If the president could completely have his way, I don't think that the result would be what critics like to call isolationism, but I think it would be an America that did not play such a forward-looking role in global leadership, particularly in global leadership uh, requiring the use of 
the United States military. Bolton is a nationalist who wants to assert American dominion around the globe. Uh, doesn't want to bother with allies or international organizations or the Congress uh, or the Washington Post uh, getting in the way of using American muscle beyond simply asserting dominion. I'm not exactly sure uh, what uh, Bolton's vision looks toward. I don't think he's interested in world peace. So uh, my guess is it's you know, throwing your weight around simply so that you can throw your weight around uh, some more. So we have two nationalists, and of course our, our exchange here assumes that Bolton at the moment is the guy who seems to carry the greatest weight in the Trump administration. We have, we have two nationalists, but nationalists who disagree, I think, on some very critical issues. Bolton seems consumed by a desire to mess up Iran. What uh, sense do you make of that? Well, I think that's true. Again, I'm not quite, I've never been able to figure out why the Iranophobes hate Iran so much and you're willing to basically give Saudi Arabia a pass. My own view would be that our policy ought to be one that sort of declares a pox on both their houses. But nonetheless, uh, one aspect of Bolton's view is that uh, Iran is evil and poses a threat and needs to be dealt with. Uh, So he appears uh, to want to exploit any opportunity to put pressure on Iran uh, arguably with an expectation that at the end of the day, though, the result will be a U.S.-Iran uh, war, which, note, which of course, Bolton will not participate in, uh, and in which he would assume that we would win handily. I would have serious doubts on that score, but I'm not Bolton. But again, whether or not that's going to succeed or not, I think, is really up for grabs. Trump doesn't want to have a war with Iran. Again, I think... Trump's view is he'd like to sort of get out of the mess that we have created over the past almost two decades now. Something similar with Afghanistan, right? Well, it's similar in the sense that the president wants out. Right, yeah. No question about that, yeah. But again, uh, whatever it is, the foreign policy establishment or Bolton or whatever, not going to uh, let that happen? Well, I think you're correct. Uh, you know, and all of these things, they have a substantive significance and the substantive, substantive significance may not be as great as the symbolic significance. The symbolic significance of, of, of the war in Afghanistan is that if you, if you accept failure, if you say, well, I guess that was a mistake, we screwed up, we need to get out of there, that potentially is like pulling a thread on a piece of fabric that could continue to unravel. And members of the foreign policy establishment, the national security establishment, uh, you know, the, the so-called blob, they are very wary of anything that is like to cause that unraveling. They don't really know how to win the war in Afghanistan. Uh, they're hard-pressed to explain why the war in Afghanistan matters to the United States. Uh, but nonetheless, they're going to stubbornly resist those who want to call an end to this undertaking. What about the, the uh, fixation with Saudi Arabia? How do they get a free pass with everything they do? 
Well, I think it's a mystery. I mean, uh, there was a time when the, there was a clear answer to that question, and that was a time when the United States was, uh, the American way of life was dependent upon oil from the Persian Gulf. Uh, and Saudi Arabia had most of it. That's no longer the case. The American way of life is not dependent upon foreign oil. We are essentially energy self-sufficient. There's plenty of fossil fuels. If you, if, if you want to burn fossil fuels available in the Western Hemisphere, whether we're talking about uh, Canada or we're talking about uh, Venezuela. Uh, so we have this bizarre circumstance, I think, where uh, in the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, we have come down firmly on the side of Saudi Arabia. I don't think we should be siding with Iran. I think we should be siding with either one. Uh, and, but certainly we should recognize that if, if values matter at all uh, in shaping U.S. foreign policy, we don't have any values, virtually no values, uh, that we share with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So this is, a, this is an utterly contrived and artificial quote-unquote friendship uh, that I would say ought to be uh, re-examined. And one, one would hope that as we move toward the 2020 presidential election, that there will be some courageous candidate uh, in the Democratic Party who's willing to open up a debate about U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, certainly, the establishment is not going to uh, entertain any such debates. It's going to have, have to come from the outside. I'm speaking with the historian and political analyst, Andrew Basevich. And what about that blob? That was Ben Rhodes' words, or Ben Rhodes and Obama together came up with this idea. Who, who are these blobs, and uh, how do they exercise their control? Uh, I mean, the blob is a blob in the sense that it's amorphous. You know, it's not, uh, it's not, it's difficult to identify the, the outer limits, the perimeter, the dimensions of the blob. Um, but the blob means the establishment. Who's the establishment? Well, the establishment is the entire national security bureaucracy. It is, with the exception of the far left and the far right, it's the Congress. It is that cohort of people that rotate in and out of government, you know, that they that serve as assistant secretary of state for some administration. And then when the other party comes in office, that person gets a billet at the Council on Foreign Relations or the Brookings Institution, waiting for a change of party that will bring them back into office. It is, I think, the, the, the blob includes the editorial boards and almost all of the columnists that write for the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, other outlets. It's the national networks, the news networks. Again, you can you can you know have a have a interesting conversation about how MSNBC and Fox News uh, view the world differently, and they both do. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, they both are committed to uh, American global leadership, and that phrase implies maintaining a large military establishment and be willing to use it. The blob looks at the, the story, the narrative of U.S. foreign policy since World War II and says, that's been really successful. Critics of the blob say, well, maybe not so successful as you think, maybe in some respects radically unsuccessful, uh, and therefore the, the template for policy 
that the blob uh, believes in may actually deserve to be re-examined. But that blob exercises considerable control over what we think of as the elected leadership in the executive branch and uh, its appointees. Yeah, I think it does. You know, the blob, uh, and, and those, those are people who probably did not vote for Donald Trump. I mean, the people, if, if you know, the counterpart to the blob, I guess, is the deplorables. Uh, and the deplorables, the people who voted for Donald Trump uh, in 2016, I think did so for all kinds of reasons. But I believe that one of those reasons is a dissatisfaction about the trajectory of American statecraft, particularly since, uh, since 9-11. You know, there, are, there are Americans who they may not be part of an anti-war movement, the kind of thing we think of you know, back in the 1960s, but who are uh, skeptical uh, of the fact that we are now engaged in wars that there's no expectation that those wars are actually ever going to end. And I think that those are the people that Trump, in his weird way, uh, is, is, is tuned into. And what about uh, U.S. relations with Russia? We have, you know, a lot of people obsessed with the idea that, that Trump is Putin's puppet. He owes his election to him. On the other hand, it's hard to see any evidence of uh, a softness in policy towards Russia. If anything, uh, they've been pretty tough. So what do you make of this whole uh, obsession with Russia? I, I have no idea what the heck uh, Trump's relationship with Putin is or what relationship he had with Russian authorities before the election. You know, I guess that's what this investigation is going to reveal. I hope it does reveal the truth, whatever the truth happens to be. That said, you're correct. U.S.-Russian relations have become increasingly frosty uh, since Trump became president. Certainly, the Pentagon uh, views the Russians as adversaries. It hasn't gotten as much press attention as it ought to have. But, you know, we now have, once again, pretty substantial U.S. forces uh, stationed, not like in West Germany, the way they used to in the old days, but now stationed in places like Poland uh, and, uh, and the Baltic republics, their purpose being to provide a security blanket uh, to the eastern limit of NATO to deter uh, any prospect of aggression by Russia. Uh, I myself don't believe that the Russian threat is, is all that great. Uh, I think President Obama was quite right when he disparaged Russia as a quote-unquote regional power. In other words, not in the same league uh, with a genuinely great power. Uh, but, but regardless of what I think, we have policies, not necessarily the policies that Donald Trump would has designed, but we have policies that are anti-Russian uh, and uh, I think are becoming as much a permanent feature as U.S. policy today as they were during the Cold War. Well, our having troops in you know, the Baltics and in Poland, it would be not unlike the Russians having troops in Mexico and Canada. I mean, the United States would lose its mind if that were the case. You know, we Americans don't look at it that way. You know, we Americans have this, um, you know, just unexamined expectation that the rules that apply to other people don't apply to us. We are certain that our purposes are uh, peaceful. Uh, we're just trying to do good things out there. Uh, and, and you're right. So 
behavior by Russia or behavior by China that we view as uh, anathema uh, are things that we sort of do routinely uh, and can't understand why Russians and Chinese get upset. All right, speaking of China, um, what about U.S. relations with China right now? Um, you know, Trump, of course, uh, busily uh, playing trade war with them, but uh, you know, as a strategic uh, um, adversary, Hillary Clinton was obsessed with uh, the, containing the Chinese. What, what do you see as the, the Trump administration's policy, if there is such a thing? Uh, there are two, I think, that uh, it, it almost doesn't matter what Trump thinks. Uh, it matters what the establishment, what matters is the views within the establishment, and my sense is that those views, and they're bipartisan views, uh, are tending to see China as the great power, challenger, or threat of the 21st century. I think the problem with that view uh, is that, you know, if we compare it with, let's say, U.S.-Soviet relations back in the late 1940s, well, we could call them the bad guys because we didn't really have any interest in dealing with the Soviet Union in, an, in a commercial or economic sense. Uh, whereas here in 2019, China is what, like our biggest or second biggest uh, trading partner. They, they hold huge amounts of American debt. I mean, with the economic inter interdependence between the two of us is a very real thing. So how that then plays with the notion, or meshes with the notion uh, that they're a security threat, I think is something that uh, remains to be sorted out. And it needs to be sorted out because, at least geopolitically, there is no relationship more important than the relationship between ourselves and the People's Republic of China. What do you make of Trump's threats to withdraw from NATO? That would seem to be a very cornerstone of American power in the world. Does he understand what he's talking about even? Well, I don't think he understands what he's talking about in any of these matters. Uh, that's a reflection of his instinct uh, that he wants to lower the American profile and get others to take responsibility for their own security. And that's a view that I share. I mean, as a general matter, I'd like to see the Europeans spend more on their own defense so that we would, they wouldn't have to continue their dependence upon uh, the United States. But there, too... Uh, as you suggested in, put, in framing the question, the establishment thinks that our membership in NATO is crucial, uh, as crucial today as it was back in the 1950s or 1960s, and therefore it's simply intolerable uh, to consider that we might actually turn Europe over to Europeans. Again, I think that we ought to turn Europe over to Europeans, not by withdrawing from NATO you know, abruptly, uh, but by, uh, you know, declaring that there's a time within which we're not going to take care of them anymore. Maybe that's 10 years from now. Give them time to figure out how to organize their own defenses. But my God, it needs to be done. Uh, or I guess we have to be responsible for, you know, defending the United Kingdom and France and Belgium and Italy and everybody else from now until the end of time. And I don't see why that's necessary. Again, in the context of issues like China, uh, it's, it's important to reduce obligations that are no longer valid so that you can focus attention and resources on challenges that are growing. Okay, then finally, what about the general state of what they like to call American leadership? I mean, it seems like we're almost acting as if it's 
50 years ago, 60 years ago, where the, the U.S. was still the unchallenged dominant power in the world in every sense. Uh, we've uh, you know, eroded considerably. People laughed at Paul Kennedy when he talked about imperial overstretch a couple of decades ago, and you know, it seemed like that maybe that got pushed aside for a while, but we seem to be back there again. What is uh, the general um, status of, of this, uh, this obsession with American leadership, and, and whether it's, it's uh, real or appropriate for the current world we live in? And it's, uh, the obsession is ideological. I mean, it, it, it derives from a contrived and false sense of who we are, what we represent, our role in history. That false perception was certainly reinforced by the end of the Cold War and all the triumphalism uh, that came out of that moment. And it's disturbing, I think, that even down to the present moment, uh, so few people who who do foreign policy are willing to to question that notion. There are some people. They're not heard in Washington. They're not welcomed by the establishment. Uh, it's really a testimony, I think, to uh, American uh, parochialism, provincialism, our ignorance of the of the way the world is is changing. This whole notion of being an indispensable nation of American exceptionalism long ago should have been tossed in the trash heap and and will eventually, uh, although it'll be painful because uh, we'll probably resist that every step along the way. But of course, that, that blob and you know the military-industrial complex and a whole bunch of people's livings depend upon uh, the, uh, the persistence of that, uh, that uh, myth of uh, superiority and leadership. You bet. Exactly right. That was Andrew Basevich, Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. You're having tea with Graham Greene In the colored costume of your choice And you'll be thought in high esteem if you're seen in between Stiffly holding umbrellas Catching the fellas Making the toast To the civil servant Carruthers Making the others worse than most You're making small talk now with the queen And the elegant ladies in waiting You're very nervous cannot tell pretty well they can tell so save yourself for the hounds of hell How some of Graham Greene by John Cale Next, GE This paradigmatic industrial corporation founded in 1892 by Thomas Edison with the financial backing of J.P. Morgan was a dominant player in the U.S. economy for decades. It's now on the ropes What happened? Here's Stephen Marr, a graduate student in political science at York University in Toronto, with some answers. This icon of American industrial history, GE, has been on the ropes for several years now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something of a, a little tale of what's happened to uh, the American economy over the uh, decades. What kind of shape is it in? What's happened to it in recent years? It's difficult to say where it will go from here. Currently, they just appointed the first ever outside director to be a CEO of the company, Larry Culp. The GE has been the kind of consummate insider-dominated firm since since it broke away from the J.P. Morgan 
investment bank in the in the 19th century. 2018 was was a very difficult year for it by any standard. I mean, it it lost its its uh, A level bond rating. It it lost 90 billion dollars in market value. It lost its spot on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And it's currently under scrutiny from the Department of Justice for its accounting practices, but it's in rough shape and it's, it's hard to know, you know, from here where, where, which direction it will go. I mean, well, let's talk something about the history of this thing. It's been really at the center of like, American industrial uh, economic history for more than a century. Uh, you mentioned breaking away from Morgan. Um, what was it doing in the early part of the 20th century? GE was the, one of the original kind of managerial firms uh, as it broke away from Morgan it. It established uh, the most well-regarded managerial systems of any corporation in, in the United States and therefore probably in the world as it kind of developed around the electrical uh, equipment and generation and distribution business. Uh, and then into World War I or World War II, it became very highly diversified. And as it did, it also reorganized itself as a kind of decentralized conglomerate. That meant essentially, uh, rather than having a kind of single functional division, uh, where you have, you know, the accounting department and the sales department and the legal department and the engineering department. Instead, it was reorganized as, as divisions as kind of being independent, isolated businesses that were kind of self-contained and autonomous. And this is really the roots of the firm's financialization was as that happened, the top managers in the 1950s or so started to become converted into what was known as is still known as general managers as opposed to operational managers. That marked their transition into being kind of what you might call money capitalists instead of direct operational overseers of particular production processes. As that happened, they, they, they evolved into being kind of investors rather than being kind of managers of specific operations. That meant that the, you know, what you made with these business divisions wasn't refrigerators or jet engines or turbines. What you made was money. And they, they increasingly, the company was its managerial systems were focused around trying to find ways to determine the quantitative value of these different internal operations and assess them as if they were external businesses. And even to the extent, by the time you hit the 1970s, uh, GE's first CFO is appointed in 1968, Reginald Jones. Uh, even to the extent of forcing these individual business units to compete for investment funds as if they were separate businesses to be distributed by top management. I want to get back to this uh, in a bit, but let's step back a couple of decades because GE's uh, history is also very wrapped up with the state. So in, in the 30s, Swope's GE was uh, pretty close to uh, FDR, right? Yeah, Swope, Swope was, I mean, oftentimes the New Deal is uh, identified as being part of the so-called Swope plan. In reality, this, this, was, this, was not, this didn't originate with Swope. It was something that he had picked up from people who were inside the state developing these, these policies in the, in the Roosevelt administration. Gerard Swope what played a key role, as GE has played throughout its history, uh, in, in trying to build support among the capitalist class for the idea that the New Deal was the only way to save American capitalism. That took the form in the 1930s of what was called uh, the Business Advisory Council, uh, which later in 1961 split off to become the Business Council, which is still uh, no longer part of the Department of Commerce as it was when it was formed, but is still one of the kind of preeminent so-called lobby organizations in the United States. And the main function of the Business Advisory Council was to, through a set of kind of subcommittees, to build capitalist class consensus around the various aspects of the New Deal. Uh, and there was a huge amount of dissent. It was an incredibly difficult 
task to convince these you know, CEOs that this was a valuable or perhaps the only way forward. And that was the kind of foundation for what was called corporate liberalism, which became the basis for the whole World War II mobilization, where they completely restructured American industry around producing war material, including constructing elaborate economic planning systems within the American state, what was called the War Production Board, which was also headed by Charles Wilson. So it's interesting to see, you know, now that Larry Culp, the current CEO, is talking about selling the, the healthcare division, for example, in order to, in, in order to follow what was essentially IMELT strategy, the, pre, the CEO uh, before this crisis all hit, now two CEOs ago, stripping back to what they call their core businesses, which are essentially all finding their origins in World War II technological development. So the company is still, is at its very core, if there is a core, marked by the technologies that it developed in World War II. Now, you mentioned Charles Wilson, uh, known at the time, I believe, as Engine Charlie, I mean, Electric Charlie, rather, as opposed to Engine Charlie of GM. But uh, he, he was quite close to Eisenhower, right? What was, uh, what was Wilson's relation with the Eisenhower regime? Wilson played a major role with a small number of others in convincing Eisenhower to run for president in the first place, as did Philip Reed, who was GE's chairman at the time. After the war ended and Eisenhower became president in the 1950s, they played a major role in working with Eisenhower to build capitalist class support in a similar way to what had been done by Gerard Swope during the New Deal, building capitalist class support for trade liberalization, which you know, was, again, a very contentious issue, much like the New Deal, not, not to the same extent, but it was very contentious, especially smaller and medium-sized capitalists were not at all in favor of the idea that there should be unilateral across-the-board tariff reductions, let alone the maintenance of relatively high levels of taxation that had never been seen at a time of peace in the United States and, and were going to be necessary in order to sustain the military-industrial complex in which GE was so deeply interlinked. So they worked with Eisenhower, uh, very closely to, to build support for the internationalization agenda, as well as to engineer support for uh, essentially the American industrial policy regime, which despite Eisenhower's warning about the military industrial complex, his administration saw no real alternative but to continue expanding, even, as the, even uh, during peacetime. And interestingly, uh, GE was very wrapped up uh, with uh, the nuclear program, both uh, military and uh, civilian, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was formed in, uh, I think, 1950 or maybe 1950, was, uh, you know, essentially a, a massive, it was state-led. It wasn't, it was not by any stretch a result of corporate lobbying. In fact, it, it's, its restrictions on patent rights were uh, much to the frustration of business. It maintained very tight restrictions on private ownership of the, of the intellectual property that, were that was developed through the Atomic Energy Program. But it did allow GE and Westinghouse to effectively monopolize the civilian nuclear energy program, which was essentially just compensation for their participation in developing uh, nuclear weapons. That also played an important function in, in legitimating the nuclear weapons program with the public. Fast forwarding to uh, the 80s, the figure of Jack Welch, very um, symbolic of a whole um, era in the uh, the business culture in the United States. He took over in 1981, Neutron Jack, he was affectionately known as. What did Welch bring to GE? Well, Welch, believe it or not, was, was uh, despite the fact that he's known as the kind of paragon of financialization, he actually, when he became the CEO, he had very little knowledge of finance. And in fact, relied heavily on a group of advisors around him to, to kind of take the reins when it came to those kinds of initiatives. What he effectively did as CEO of the company was take GE's financialized 
kind of beginnings and blow them up to vastly new proportions. Essentially, by the time he was done, 50% of the company's revenues came from what was called GE Capital, which has now mostly been broken up and sold off uh, since the IMELT years. He really brought the company into financial services and into, into typical what we regarded as financial products. But it's important to note that GE first moved into this kind of financialized management strategy in the mid-1960s as the kind of post-war boom was slowing and it was looking for an alternative way of, of maintaining its growth faster than GDP. And it, when, it did, when it did so, it, it chose to make this choice because the financial capacities, the management systems and so on that were, that were at the core of these leasing and later insurance and, and other kinds of uh, businesses had already been developed by the company in the course of its uh, decentralization, in the course of its, of its uh, you know, internal marketization that I described earlier. So Jack Welch took this core and effectively saw this as a potential source of a huge array of new businesses that hadn't been exploited yet. And he chose to you know, grow those businesses in, in a way that was drastically outsized compared to its core operations, and which after the 2008 crisis, with the, uh, the Federal Reserve threatening to classify GE as a systemically important financial institution and regulated as a bank, you know, the company effectively decided to divest and break up GE Capital. Uh, now, how did Welchain earn the nickname uh, Neutron Jack? Well, they call him Neutron Jack because uh, a neutron bomb is, is a kind of bomb that leaves buildings or, or structures intact but kills just people. And they call it, so they call it Neutron Jack because of his effect on you know, bringing about what's called lean production. And he was also the leading exponent of, of uh, shareholder value, which, which is a, essentially a management philosophy that argues that the number one concern of, of a corporation should be to enhance the share price. It's very interesting to see this coming from a GE CEO, given that it was the kind of paradigmatic managerial firm. I mean, a generation before Jack Welch, another very famous GE CEO, Ralph Cordner, had a strategy of splitting the stock whenever it reached a certain price point to prevent people from speculating on, on the asset value and also to prevent the emergence of an oppositional kind of block of, of, of investor power that could challenge the role of, or, the, or the prerogative of, of managerial insiders, insider managers. Now we see Larry Culp becoming the CEO, the first ever outsider to run the company, and, and it's quite a dramatic reversal from the Cordner days. When did Welch leave? 2001. And then succeeded by IMELT? He was just succeeded by IMELT, that's correct. So what were the IMELT years like? The Federal Reserve had, had threatened to classify GE as a bank. And one of the whole reasons why GE got into finance in the first place was because the New Deal financial regulations you know, allowed it to be classified as an industrial firm and therefore to have a competitive advantage against financial companies in uh, offering financial products all throughout the 1960s. And so when, when... Were they just trying to capture their bankers' profits by financing GE stuff, or did they get involved in stuff far from GE's core businesses? It was definitely a lot of financial services around boosting demand for GE products and adding services kind of around the core industrial consumer and industrial offerings. But, but it was also, you know, offering a, a consumer financial services products, which, you know, the American banks were already engaged in, in offering in Europe in the relatively unregulated euro dollar markets. But they were not allowed to offer in the United States because of the New Deal financial regulations, which separated consumer and investment banks. And they decided to try to offer those programs in the U.S. too. So it was a bit of a mix, but it was nowhere near the scale as what Welsh did in the 1980s. 
I'm speaking with Stephen Marr, a graduate student at York University, who's been researching the history of GE. And so what was happening on the industrial side under Imel? So under Imel, he, he decided he was his whole strategy after this, after these moves by the Fed, he decided to try to pare back the company to what it was called, it's what he saw as its core businesses. The kind of imaginary that this is intended to conjure up is for GE to return to the kind of company that it was in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But that's impossible because the company itself, just organizationally, institutionally, is completely different than the company it was in those years. It's now organized as an internal capital market, as I mentioned. So he's talking about going back to the company's core operations, but the problem is you can't. Secondly, he actually ends up making a series of acquisitions that end up being completely disastrous, especially in the oil and gas sector, taking a 62.5% stake in Baker Hughes and buying the French energy company Alstom. Both of these uh, are investments that the company has now come to regret and, and is trying to divest from. He also invested very heavily in or had very high hopes for this Internet of Things technology, which also hasn't panned out, you know, smart manufacturing, 3D printing, this kind of stuff, which hasn't panned out at all the way that the company intended and has proven to be a miscalculation. So he tried to both kind of return to the company's position as a, as a kind of high-tech manufacturer, which is indeed what it had been in World War II, which was a failure. He also invested in, in these energy investments that were also a failure. So part of it was bad luck, part of it was bad judgment, and part of it was just the simple reality that the company, you can't just, you can't just turn back the clock to 1950. I mean, it's just, it's a different reality that the company's in. I think Donald Trump would like to do that, but it doesn't, it's not working out too well for him either. But then the stock price like peaked, I believe, in 2000, and it's been hammered ever since. So uh, first uh, Welch and then Imelt uh, were not uh, getting good reviews from Wall Street, were they? No, I mean, and Imelt, Imelt tried to buy off Wall Street. I mean, there's this big debate in, 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 the, Amer in the literature and the kind of American political science and economics about whether or not the American system is conducive to so-called patient capital or the kind of long-term investment. And I think that this debate really is, is resolvable into seeing fine, the, the rising power of finance and its ability to discipline management. And IML effectively tried to buy off financial pressure by engaging in huge buybacks, stock buybacks, to keep the price of the stock high while he engaged in a restructuring of the company of the kind that we were just talking about. It didn't work. It didn't work because he made bad investments and it didn't work because the company had other issues. I mean, the Department of Justice is currently investigating its accounting practices. It's, it's implicated in subprime mortgages. It has uh, a huge shortfall in terms of its insurance business, long-term care, uh, insurance policies that are, that are utterly potentially da damaging for the company. That, that's causing all kinds of cash flow problems and a huge debt problem. Since the 1980s, I mean, another part of, of Welsh's strategy was to accelerate what was essentially already part of the company's strategy, which was to specialize rather than in what was called incubating new businesses. GE is a conglomerate, right? And conglomerates are, are corporations that are made up of many different businesses, many different divisions that are, that are organized around different product lines. And one way conglomerates can grow and the way that GE likes to brag and has traditionally grown is by incubating new businesses, right? Find, through its engineering capacities and so on, developing new products that emerge as eventually emerge as new businesses. Another way, though, which Jack Welsh favored especially, is to simply buy up businesses externally, restructure them, take what you want from them, assimilate them to other divisions or reorganize them as new divisions, and then sell off what you don't want. 
And that strategy depended completely on GE being able to have maintain a triple A bond rating. You know, effectively, the markets were saying GE's debt was as good as U.S. Treasuries. And that allowed the GE to engage in effectively, you know, large amount of leverage buyouts, which means you're essentially buying a business on debt, restructuring it, selling it off and paying off the debt with the with the benefit, with the proceeds. Now that GE's debt has been downgraded to just above junk status, uh, that strategy is no longer viable. And so it needs to find a new growth strategy. And, and the bottom line is that it's, it's kind of core industrial operations aren't doing it. And it's and it's now increasingly having to sell off. Uh, even those businesses that that really one might have regarded only a few years ago as core, including its its aircraft leasing business. Back in 2015, I believe it was, uh, this fellow Nelson Peltz came in the scene. Peltz, uh, a uh, product of the Michael Milken era of the 1980s, who managed to survive into the 2000s and beyond. What was Peltz all about? Nelson Peltz is yeah the the, the head of Tryon Management. He he took a stake about I think one percent of GE's total market capitalization. And, and they it released a white paper with targets, which GE had to meet. It effectively wanted to implement a restructuring program. When GE failed to meet it, Nelson Peltz was credited with forcing iMelt out. Now, this was potentially quite a, a milestone in the history of American capitalism in the sense that, as I was mentioning earlier, GE, which had been this kind of paradigmatic managerial firm, its 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 management training facilities in Crotonville, New York, are regarded as the, the kind of creme de la creme of American management, the kind of origin of the so-called managerial science, new scientific management that emerged in the post-war period. So now this is this kind of citadel of managerialism is under is under attack, apparently, from Nelson Peltz. But what that what those kinds of stories miss is that the only reason Nelson Peltz could play this activist function with a 1% share, uh, 1% of, of, of GE's market capitalization is because this broader structural power of finance was such that management was already feeling the squeeze from, from external financiers and the pressure from Wall Street. This is the whole reason why Jack Welsh had turned towards shareholder value over the 1980s. Uh, this is a reflection of the rising power of Wall Street. So Nelson Peltz is a kind of spearhead of financial power that, that did succeed in, in uh, unseating IMELT when, when he failed to live up to their expectations. Two years after that white paper was released, in October 2017, Tryon Management was given a seat on GE's board and immediately commenced a year-long review, which essentially coincided with the tenure of John Flannery, who replaced IMELT. Flannery's tenure itself is quite significant because it's the shortest by far in the entire history of the company. I mean, generally speaking, the, the average has been for CEOs to serve about 10 years, each of which kind of has coincided with a whole epoch of American capitalism. Welsh served 20 years. Imelt served 20 years. Flannery served one year. And that one year coincided with, with this year-long review that, that Tryon co-kind of led with GE Insiders beginning in October 2017. That has now concluded. And, and essentially, nothing new has come out of that. The, the strategy that, that's... The company's following under Culp, at least. This is Larry Culp, uh, an external turnaround artist they brought in. Yeah, Larry Culp, the, the external turnaround artist and the, the darling of Wall Street. He was the CEO of this company called Danaher before GE, which, which you know, was a kind of alt, also a kind of divisional conglomerate, much smaller than GE. But he was credited with turning it around, including increasing its market capitalization by five times uh, over 2001 to 2014. Now, what's, what's also significant that, that's happened over, over these, these recent years with GE, uh, especially, but also with other companies, 
is that you know over the managerial period with management within insiders having the paramount kind of position within the company over corporate governance and and the external financiers relatively powerless boards of directors had been from the 1950s until the 1990s and beyond effectively backwaters i mean they were completely under the control of insiders the only people who got seats on boards were people that insiders appointed and wanted i mean there was elections but unless you were nominated as part of the slate that management put was putting forward there was no real opportunity to put anybody else uh, on the board now we're seeing really active financiers pushing for seats on boards and boards playing really active roles in disciplining top insiders it was the board of directors that demanded that imelt resign it was the board of directors that demanded that flannery resign and it's the board of directors that has approved of culp and has effectively given him the imprimatur which companies like tryan but also you know jp morgan are very you know publicly now expressing their approval of so we see kind of complete restructuring of the ways in which the corporation is organized and the relations of power between inside management and outside investors that are that also are reflected inside the company itself in the way that it's organized in a more financialized way so so the rise of tryan and the increasing prominence of of people like pelts is a reflection of a much broader and much deeper restructuring of american capitalism and the the non-financial corporation itself it's not clear that pelts or any of these characters have an idea of how to turn around ge though is it no and in fact pelts has been quite spectacularly wrong on all of his predictions for how ge's performance would change of course there's been huge you know kind of unpredictable things including including this insurance problem but also the deep problems with ge's power business reflected in the in the the issues with baker hughes and and alston but also now they've had this this new line of of gas powered turbines that are that are apparently failing you know at a quite high rate which is part of what presumably led to Flannery resigning was that that was going to be another huge shortfall in the company's bottom line. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they, there's, there's unexpected, unpredictable things that have happened. But by any stretch, by any estimation, Nelson Peltz in particular and, and the financial sector in general has, has been spectacularly wrong in its estimation of how GE would perform uh, and how it would be able to be turned around first by Flannery and now by Culp. I mean, there's no real reason to believe that Larry Culp will be able to do anything different than what Flannery was doing, and he's essentially following the same strategy. Yeah, they, they don't they don't have any clue, and I don't think anybody does. It's completely within the realm of possibility that GE, one of the oldest American companies, one of the original corporations, you know, founded in the 19th century by Thomas Edison, may well be broken up. Let's return to a point uh, to wrap this up, to return to a point that you made uh, a little while ago about how it went from, you know, making things to making money. How is that different from, you know, the old Marx formula of MCM prime? What is different about this stage of capitalism? It's always been about making money. Is there something different about this stage from earlier stages? What's different about the current stage we're entering after 2008 is an incredible increase in, in the concentration in a very small number of financial institutions and coupled with a shift toward passive investment funds and all the, and all that. But in terms of, of GE becoming kind of financialized in the way that you're mentioning, that actually has its origins in the 1950s and 60s. It's not that MCM prime no longer exists or is no longer the relevant kind of formula for understanding how the, the cycle of investment and profit works. It's that top management 
is now in the position and has been increasingly since especially the 1960s of being a money capitalist. They don't have any particular knowledge or direct role in operational activities of a particular business. What they're doing is investing money and looking for a return. And this can be best thought of, I think, as the, in terms of the transition of the firm over beginning in the 1960s from a system of production to a system of investment. The whole internal logic of the corporation it has been to divide labor between top management, who, who monopolize or control investment functions, and then lower level managers who control operational functions within their individual business divisions. So this is, this is really going back to the division of the firm into a kind of, the reorganization of the firm into a kind of divisional conglomerate. Instead of management trying to run a power business, now you have management trying to oversee a variety of different businesses that have no necessary operational linkages between them and whose specific operational functions top managers don't know anything about necessarily. Like Jack Welch didn't know anything about even, even the kind of financial products that he was investing in so heavily. It, it's about the bottom line and it's about assessing internal corporate operations as if they were external companies. And that has led to the dramatic empowerment of the financial office within the company. I mean, GE's CFO, the first ever CFO, was appointed in 1968, Reginald Jones, who later went on to become the CEO. But, you know, so in, in 1962, not a single American corporation had a CFO. By the 1990s, CFOs are all but ubiquitous, and they emerge first in these kind of conglomerated firms. So what I'm trying to say is that the financialized restructuring of the company is much deeper than just Jack Welsh investing in financial services in the 1980s and expanding that part of the business well beyond any kind of proportionality. It's much deeper than that. It involves the conversion of top managers into bearers of abstract money capital, bearers of abstract money rather than managers of particular concrete operations. That was Stephen Marr, a grad student in political science at York University in Toronto. He's got an article on GE on the Jacobin Magazine website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Since the U.S. social order seems to be in decline, as these stories of GE suggest, maybe we should go out with some music from another declining social order, from the era of Louis XV of France, whose reign was marked by expensive wars that drained the treasury and set the stage for revolution. This is some of the Musette de Choisy by François Couperin, composed in 1722, performed by David Moroni and Olivier Beaumont. Till next week, bye!